You're listening to another episode of The Zag, the first one of 2018, even though it's being recorded before 2018. We're here live, our third live recording with 2014 fellow Jonathan Yang. He's here, home on break. Excited to talk to him. Excited to hear what's new in Boston and in the law world. So let's get to it. All right, Jonathan, where in the world did you come in from? From uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Sunny and frozen. Actually, it's not even sunny, so only half of that's true. Okay. And you just wrapped uh, year two of law school, correct? Uh, halfway through the second year. Half- so, that's true. Yeah, yeah, only halfway there. Um, but I passed the halfway point. Definitely and they invited you back each semester, which is really They important. have. They have. You know, I think they want the tuition checks. I think that's... Uh, it makes sense. Yeah. So what's on tap for semester two class-wise? Semester two... Wow. So it's... That's funny. I'm changing things up. So we do a uh, clinic uh, in law school. is a chance where you get to practice being a real lawyer under some supervision and actually put those skills to use. So I'm going to do a clinic that we have out there called the Community Enterprise uh, Project. So you basically work with small businesses, nonprofits, and the local community, as well as do a kind of bigger strategic project to try to help make economic development uh, more inclusive out there so hopefully get some lessons for out here and then you're off to the bay in a little bit what are you doing on your your bay excursion yeah so we have this weird uh thing where january you're either required to go back and take a short class on campus which is frozen right now or do an internship and so being a california through and through i chose an internship and i'll be up in uh, the san francisco office of the california state attorney general javier becerra working with their consumer protection team so given that consumer protections have been weakened lately, how do you see the job playing out? Do you have certain tasks already or once you get there, they'll tell you what's on what's on tap? Uh, well, for me personally, I'm going to find, you know, I'm there for three weeks and you just try to soak solve, up as much as you all can the problems. help out. But uh, more generally, I mean, this is a really, really important time for state attorneys general because I think we think of like the federal level as we were, we, we've historically relied on the federal level for a lot of protections, or at least that's what we pay attention to. But state attorneys general have a lot of extra, of state level powers. And because California is such a big and important state, you can do a lot to crack down on businesses that are cheating people uh, just from California because if they do business anywhere, they're probably doing business in California. And you've got lo- lots of local folks who are doing some shady things like people preying on immigrants and saying, trying to you know scam people and say, pay me some money, I'll get you a visa, that sort of thing. So there's a whole range of things that at the state level are more important than ever, uh, in some ways because they're crafted by our very progressive legislature, actually better protect people than the federal protections. So we'd love to have a strong federal government doing consumer protection, but at least in California, we've got good folks on the job. So then since you're about halfway through the law school experience, how does it work with you deciding what you do when you're done? Like are these summer things leading to a specific type of role that you're trying to, to seek or there's still left to be determined in the last year and a half? Uh, I think so. They're both true, right? You still, you get a lot of experiences, you get exposure to what it's like to be a lawyer, which I think can be pretty different than uh, what most of us think lawyers do, including those of us who go to law school. When you see TV, you watch movies, whether it's the West Wing, Law and Order, you see lawyers and suits, right, as, uh, on the private sector side. And part of law school is getting exposure to what it actually means to be a lawyer. And some parts of that are actually not as interesting. And some of those parts are more interesting. You've never seen them on TV. So you do the summers, you get the experience. Uh, but I think the early stages of most lawyers' career, because law school, like law school has not, has probably evolved least of any professional school. You could dig up Abraham Lincoln. Well, he didn't go to law school. But you could dig up someone from that time period, put him in a law school classroom, and they'd recognize a lot of it. It doesn't actually teach you how to be a lawyer, although I think the education has been important for kind of the deeper foundational thinking. So those early practical experiences, you're going to still learn how to be a lawyer even when you leave school. And then from there, it's sort of, a, but I think, 
I think it's not unique to lawyers that more and more with our generation moving forward, you're real like their tradition traditional paths are falling falling by the way, so not falling by the way, so just aren't there. We have to each create our own path and lawyers just have to do that by the way the industry is shaped. And then when people ask you where you go to law school, what is your usual evasive answer? Is it <laughs> is it oh I go to school in Cambridge or oh I'm in the Northeast or what what is your usual approach to that? <laughs> well I certainly so I certainly have I don't think I've ever said proactively where I went to law school. But if people ask me, I'm just going to tell them. I think you just, it's like ripping off a bandaid. You just get it out of the way. So if you're implicitly asking me the question, I'm at Harvard Law School. It's a great place, but you don't wear it on your forehead. All right. Well, I'm glad to be the only Harvard graduate degree person here right now. My Harvard Divinity degree that everyone forgets that I have, that I forget that I have too. <laughs> so in law school, what are people, what are people talking about? Because I feel like you didn't know Trump was going to be president when you were applying, uh, mm-hmm. I imagine. Yeah. And then I think yeah. you. you saw some changes in the world and especially in changes in the law. So what do people actually talk about as it relates to what's happening nationally? So it's a fascinating time for plenty of, well, as you just said, not necessarily great reasons to be in law school. I mean, to sit in a classroom around smart, committed folks, most of whom are progressive, not all of whom are, but even folks who are traditionally progressive are concerned about the way things are going. And to sit in a classroom and learn about the rule of law, learn about institutions, learn about kind of how you structure a society and how important it is to have these, not just the laws on the books, but the norms and the culture surrounding it, uh, to be learning all of that at a time when you see in very visible ways those norms are being flouted from the top on down, through the, from the president down through the administration. And then on the flip side, from the ground up, people being hurt and threatened and how the law and the court system can actually put a stop, even if only temporarily, to provide some relief to people as a last check on a government that's uh, exceeding kind of those norms that we talked about in the rule of law. So it's a very interesting time, uh, concerning, but it's sort of a reminder of this is what's underlying what we're learning. So then do you see after the Trump administration ends, whether it's it's in 2020 or after that, God forbid, but will there be a push to put some of these norms into law, whether it's all future presidential candidates have to release tax returns or new laws that would prevent a president from making profit in the way that Trump is making profit now? Or do you just see a heightened awareness of norms in lip service only, but there's no real action that gives it any teeth? So there's a lot of, there's a lot there to, to take apart. The first is I think we will, we will see laws passed. I mean, that's just what we tend to do as a society. If we see a problem, we think a law will fix it. And I think that's important. And there are definitely things like what you just said in terms of the uh, tax returns requiring disclosure. That's a fairly straightforward law that would work. I think that would be helpful and that you, you'll probably see. I think for a lot of the issues, part of the problem is we rely on these norms or these norms are important because they go farther than the, they go farther and they underpin what the law says, right? There are any number of laws on the books that aren't enforced or enforced anywhere close to where they really ought to be. Uh, and writing a stricter version of that without the norms that come with it uh, that are built up over time doesn't necessarily solve the problem. So I think you definitely, hopefully, will see a greater appreciation for not just, hey, are we following the letter of the law, but are we following the spirit of the law? And you'll certainly see efforts to legislate and change the laws, and there's certainly things that can help. But at the end of the day, I think it goes deeper than that, that the solution to fixing the damage that's already been done and the damage that unfortunately probably will continue to be done come 2020 or whenever the time frame is, uh, we'll need more than just legal changes. Legal law, Laws will be a crucial part of it. There's some structural things you can change that help create norms and create culture, but 
uh, it's not going to be just words on a piece of paper. I mean, we're seeing words on the piece of paper. The emoluments clause doesn't seem to stop folks from that. Right? Yeah. So we'll, we'll have to see what happens, but everyone will have to be engaged. And then do you feel it all plugged into the university at large? So I feel like universities in general were a hot topic during the tax cut debate. What kind of status they would maintain, what abilities they would have with their endowments. Do you feel plugged into those discussions? Do you have any take on those discussions? Like, What's your opinion on, on Harvard as a entity that's serving the people of Massachusetts and is serving the country at large? Okay, so couple of things. Just me personally, I think one of the things I've enjoyed about being at Harvard Law School as part of Harvard University is that it does feel plugged in. I try to spend as much time, for example, at the Kennedy School of Government, as much time as I can spend there without having to get a second degree. Uh, go over to the business school, do a lot of, you know, and I think there are, uh, and actually we've been working on getting law students more plugged into those other schools. Historically, law school has kind of been a little bit on its own, at least with respect to state and local issues, which I certainly have a deep background in and interest in, and more and more folks are for a lot of the reasons we talked about. That's where the action is. And so, especially in that area, whether it's zoning, transportation, uh, state-level issues, education, all these subnational topics, uh, you see a lot more law students being interested and therefore plugging into the conversation that then bring in business school, Kennedy School, education school, all those other folks. Uh, Harvard as an institution in our kind of national discourse, uh, it's, look, it's an incredibly powerful, it's incredibly powerful aggregation and agglomeration of very smart people with a lot of both practical and academic and theoretical experience. And I think there's absolutely always a place, an important place for that in a democracy, in a free society, where you have those folks taking a step back, kicking around ideas, trying to point out what they're seeing in the medium and long term, and then training young minds kind of with that foundation to then go out into the real world. I think the challenge with any institution doing that is walking a fine line uh, between having that knowledge and recognizing what you don't know, and then when communicating with non-Harvard audiences, uh, recognizing that the limit, both being, being upfront about your limitations while still not being shy about contributing to the conversation. And I think there's a tendency to go to either extreme. We're Harvard. We know everything. We know exactly how it's done. The world is scientific and perfectible, and we in our ivory tower have done it. You should just listen to us, which is totally wrong and paternalistic. Or the other end of the spectrum, which is we can't possibly know anything because we're in an ivory tower. There's nothing we can contribute. We should just be passive and not engage in important debates. And I think neither of those is correct. All right. We come back. We'll hear some other knowledge from Jonathan on a variety of topics, ah. including political things, NLC things, LA things. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Zag. All right. So I think it's interesting you're in Boston because Boston for a while was in the running for the Olympics and then – Had won the Olympics. It won the Olympics, the right? And then for had the a, U.S. bid at least. A yeah. U.S. bid and then had a, a mass revolt. I think rightly so. Um, and you're someone who, who rides hard for, for L.A., so what's your what's your take on what the 2028 Olympics will be like? And if you have any funny stories about Boston people hating on the <laughs> Olympics, let us know too. Yeah, but what do you think is going to happen in 2028? Uh, well, so just on the Boston stories, it's funny. So right, so Boston had won the U.S. bid. They had, and then they when we you know we were fine, we had moved on for the most part. And then uh, yeah, they had a referendum and gave it up. And so came to LA on the second try, and we took it and ran with it. Uh, but when I ran into Mayor Walsh had come and given a speech on campus, I ran into him. I said, hey, you know, uh, good to meet you, Mayor. And he used to work with Eric Garcetti. And he goes, ah, I can't. I'm going to get his accent right. He goes, ah, Eric, 
he's uh, he's got my Olympics. He's got my <laughs> Olympics. And then he sort of looked off and walked away. I had clearly struck a struck a, a sore spot for him. And so that was the end of that conversation. Uh, but no, what will 2020, what will Los Angeles and the 2028 Olympics uh, look like? Well, I think one of the reasons why, and this is, you know, nothing either the mayor and the bid committee and Casey Washington, all the great folks who, you know, got us LA 28 have been consistent about this. LA is better suited than any other city in the world to do the Olympics. We could have done them in 2024, which is what we were originally bidding for. We're going to be great doing them in 2028 uh, because usually, you know, the horror stories you hear about the Olympics and losing a lot of money are because cities build big, shiny things that they're never going to use again. Coliseums, stadiums, rail networks, not so much rail networks. We wish they would build rail, rail networks. Uh, you know, housing for athletes that's, that's in weird places, all sorts of things. Uh, and it, and LA isn't doing that. I think we're building, it could, I, not up to date, but I remember from when I was more, a little bit more involved, I think like the main thing we're building is a velodrome, which is a thing for bicycles, uh, which, yeah, you know, we'll build that and we'll be fine and we'll update it. Uh, but basically we're not building that much stuff. And on the operating side, I mean, this is the world, this is a, this is the global sporting event. And so you tend to make, you make lots of money left over. So financially, not concerned about that. And I think it's an opportunity uh, for us to showcase the city and then an impetus, a catalyst to deal with some of our challenges because you have a global spotlight coming. And then when you're looking at where politically California might be in 2028, so we have important races coming up for, for governor. Um, Garcetti will, will be gone by that point in time for sure. But looking at the governor race, what do you see early on? What are your some of your predictions about what's going to happen? Uh, this upcoming one in, uh, in 2018. Well, I've you know mostly been only able to follow it from afar, so I think you know these. It's been largely quiet. It seems like I've been surprised that I haven't heard more. You've got you know some strong contenders, certainly on the Democratic side. I think these last couple months before uh, the primary, uh, in just a couple months, you'll kind of see things. Uh, I think you'll see the sparks fly and see if there's major movement. Uh, you know, I don't I. It's just I don't know what the defining frame for the election will be, if it will necessarily be, mm-hmm. hey, we're looking for a governor who is going to take on Trump and carry on Jerry Brown's kind of legacy, uh, most recently of doing that, or God forbid, if there's a uh, recession or some kind of economic trouble, which the newly passed tax bill, unfortunately, makes probably a little bit more likely, that may change the landscape entirely in terms of we've seen California up and down because of how our uh, state tax structure uh, uh how our state tax revenue is structured, that we get a lot of big ups and downs. And so uh, we'll see whether that changes the conversation. Any number of things could happen. Uh, every month in this political landscape has been, has brought new surprises. So we'll see. But, you know, we're the sixth largest economy, so it'll be a race to watch. Always a race to watch. Something else to watch, too, is uh, our new fellows. Yeah. They've been announced. You can find them on our website, uh, both the 2018 Institute Fellows and the NLC LA Engaged Fellows. Um, what do you remember from the 2014 period? And then I'll tell a funny story about you. But what do you, what, what do you remember about that, that, that point in time in your life? Uh, around that, that point in time in my life. So let's see. So it was uh, 2014. I was just starting to work at City Hall. Uh, I, what I remember about overall experience is what I say to folks who ask me about it, which NLC – my number one takeaway for how I describe the program is it introduces you to 20 friends and change who you get along with really well who you otherwise wouldn't have met because it's folks who you just click with in terms of culture, sense of humor, progressive values, kind of interest in being engaged, but who are from different backgrounds entirely, right? Uh, 
off the top of my head, Brittany, right? Filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Like I would never, I don't think I ever would have run into her in LA circles, uh, but I did through NLC. And you just go down the list of folks, you know, it's not purely political staff, it's folks from all over. So I love that, love that experience and really kind of broadening my horizon of, hey, these are ways that folks can be active and engaged in the progressive community. And then the actual relationships that you build there. Yeah. Well, I remember when we released the names, I remember you texting me a couple of weeks ago <laughs> how you're saying you never would have got, got in, which is funny because I feel the same way. I would never get in now either. Um, but I was finding comical that we didn't know how old you were when you got into the fellowship. And we didn't find out to the end of the first weekend. Were you 22, 23 uh, when you started? I was 23 by that point. Yeah, yeah. Not that we have any age up or down rules, but yeah, it was like, wow, you, you, I was never really well. asked. Yeah. I we never asked. asked. You never <laughs> done us to ask. Um, so we catch people on the upswing, obviously, which is, which is important. Listen, I'm glad you came in. I'm glad you're in town. I'm glad we got glad to, to do it. Got to do this live. Uh, and like we're saying, New fellows have been announced. Check them out. And also, you can meet them in person. We're doing a, a kind of one-of-a-kind event, if you will, mashed up with a very popular event. So on January 19th at Villains Tavern in the Arts District of downtown LA, uh, we'll do our 7th Annual Heroes at Villains and actually recognizing four alumni this year, so all alums, which is exciting. Um, Anna from our 2011 class, Tamika from 2014, Jonathan Butler uh, from 2014 as well. And then Roque from our most recent class, 2017. So we'll celebrate them. But more importantly, you'll also have a chance to meet all of the new fellows. They'll be there too. So you can buy tickets, some good deals now, $30 for regular admission. And then we've cut some deals on there too, which you can check out on the site. So we'll see you January 19th. And we'll see you more on more episodes of The Zag coming up in 2018. Thanks for listening. You can find the 25 previous episodes on iTunes or Google Play. Download today. We'll see you soon.